The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. This week's episode features Talison Switch. Talison is a neurodivergent sex worker and educator specializing in BDSM and queer exploration. They consider themselves to be a person with one foot in theoretical academics and the other in practical experience and use an integrative approach to their work. They're passionate about further aiding people's knowledge of themselves in a welcoming and safe environment. So Talison, it's so amazing to have you on the podcast today. This is a topic we are both very excited to talk about. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure, our pleasure. So we'll start off with our first question that we always ask all guests that come on. What does neurodivergence mean to you? So to me, I suppose the biggest thing that it means to me is the difference within it, because it's not just autistic, ADHD, other sort of neurodivergencies, bipolar, etc. It is just a level of difference from what we typically see and I'm a big fan of neuroqueer theory so I could then ramble about how oh well all brains are different so what is typical what is divergent but I won't do that because that's a whole episode in and of itself I mean (laughs) please do please give us the cliff notes on that I can certainly try Um, (laughs) um, so from my understanding of it it is a sort of branch of queer theory where that idea of you have a typical you know In queer theory, you have your typical society, which is straight, cisgender. It performs all those roles of that, not to say that those are essential things that people are, but they are more performances. And to queer something is to reject those performances. Well, neurotypicality is also performance. What a person should act like, talk like, behave um, in the ways that we describe as neurotypical, that is a performance. Everyone has their little things that they mask. Um, and people whose brains, who sooner, you know, neuro people we describe as neurodivergent, they just by not masking that is an act of queering the mind, if that makes sense. Mm. No, absolutely. I think that's a really good description because it's funny, you know, you're saying like neurotypicality and what we would consider as neurotypical behavior sort of being that performative element. And I would totally agree in that a lot of neurotypical social behavior is that sense of, okay, this is the way that we go about, you know, doing X, Y, Z, or this is how we might behave in these situations. 
It's interesting because we know that there are actual neurobiological differences between, say, a neurotypical person versus, say, someone who is autistic or an ADHD or someone who's bipolar or any other kind of form of neurodivergence. But from that social side of things, I would almost say what makes someone closer to that I guess, typicality, which we know just means common, right, is almost like someone's comfortableness with maintaining the performance. And it's kind of like, I'm sure, um, Taliesin, you'd be well across the Kinsey scale. Alfred Kinsey was a really kind of fundamental sex researcher in the 70s, and he sort of developed this scale of one to seven, which was basically like how heterosexual or homosexual are you? So one being absolutely heterosexual, seven being absolutely homosexual. And what he found is that very rarely are people a one or a seven most people are actually somewhere sort of in the middle and we might lean to one side or the other, but most people are kind of, you know, a little bit more fluid than we might actually initially think of ourselves as. So it's interesting that you talk about, yeah, neurotypicality as that performance. And I would say similar to if we look back on queer history, similar to, you know, the fact that there's always been queer people since the dawn of time, but certain societal boundaries have made that more or less safe for people to be outwardly queer. And then there's always been people who are just like, I actually cannot fake this. It's impossible for me to fake this. And they're the people who were, you know, persecuted, um, outwardly and horrifically discriminated against during a time where it wasn't safe. Whereas the people who were like, actually, I think I, I, I can kind of squeeze into this box. It's not super comfortable, but it's within the wheelhouse of what's possible for me. So I don't know, that was a bit of a ramble, but it's sort of what it made me think of when you were talking about like performances and and who's comfortable, you know, engaging in that performance versus who's not. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so neuroqueer theory is that idea that you have these ideas that make up commonplace, typical society. And then by queering it, you're outside of that, realm um and there is a liberation and a rejection in there um as well as that idea of a lot of neurotypical society and that social aspect in the masking um has a reliance on that um heterosexual cisgender sort of performance which then by rejecting that you're also it's very intersectional (laughs) Mm, mm. No, I get it. It's kind of you're rejecting lots of aspects of the status quo. So not just, you know, how neurotypical people might behave, but the assumed kind of how we need to identify need in inverted commas to identify, you know, in our sexuality and sexual performance and gender identity and gender performance, which then feeds into capitalism and patriarchy and all of those things. So yeah, I, I hear what you're saying when you were like, we could do a whole episode on neurocritic theory the moment i found out about it my brain exploded uh it's it's so fun yeah i think it's such an important theory for you know our listeners to to know about and yeah i think i'm not sure within within australia but i haven't seen it as talked about i guess like the neuroqueer theory within the australian neurodivergent community so i think it's really important to get people talking about it and and learning about it but Talison, can you tell us, coming back to your personal experiences, when did you first realize that you were neurodivergent and what was that like for you? Um, yeah, so I first realized it would have been maybe three, 
years ago, I've always felt very different. And it, it's funny, one of my hyperfixation years ago was actually autism um still didn't pick up on it though and it wasn't until a couple of years ago when the discourse around typically seen as like women or like feminine um autism and how that presents in ways that aren't you know five-year-old little autistic boys that are screaming in a classroom um and how it presents and more so how it feels for the individual rather than how it affects other people and just listening to that and ticking the boxes in my head going, oh, yes, yes. Oh, I do that. I feel that. So it was a couple of years ago. And then I was unofficially diagnosed by uh, my psychologist. Yeah, about three years ago. And then officially diagnosed as autistic and ADHD last year. Um, and it just felt like a massive weight off my shoulders. Like the like I was seeing what was behind the curtain. I'd always felt so different and I always had felt so alone in my experience in the world and like I was wrong or broken or you know I was always the first to describe myself as just oh I'm just I'm really weird um I'm really stupid I'm weird etc and then having oh I'm not stupid and weird I am autistic um it was life-changing it sounds like it was liberating for you like when you talked earlier about that sense of liberation in your queer theory yeah it was very liberating I love that how you articulated coming to that realization of it's not actually just how it affects others, it's how you experience it. And I feel like so many um, female presenting and, you know, AFAB women, so many people within that group, as we've moved more to an understanding of what the internal experience of neurodivergence is, it's like this, exactly as you say, this curtain has lifted like, oh my mm. God, okay. There's an explanation for how I feel and it is normal and there are lots of other people that feel exactly the same way. Yeah, I really think that shift in going from the external from the internal has changed so many lives in how we understand ourselves in the community. Thanks for taking us through a little bit about, you know, what neurodivergence means to you and your kind of um, experience of your own neurodivergence and how you came to your diagnosis or your sort of self-awareness or self-understanding. What we're going to do now is get spicy. Yes. <laughs> so our first spicy question for you is we'd love if you could tell us just a little bit about your work as a BDSM facilitator, kink and sexuality educator, and sex worker specializing in queer exploration. And as a sort of subsidiary question to that, I think what I'd like to know as well is how is your specialty different and what are some things about your job in particular that some people might not realize? Absolutely. So I I find it is sort of in two parts. I have kink and sex and then the sort of sex work and the providing and the facilitation. And then there is education. And both of those have their own sort of separate realms, as well as a lot of them commingle. And, you know, it's very much a Venn diagram there. Um, so on the first half, I provide people who um, people come to me and they may want to have a certain sexual experience, whether it just be with me or a certain activity they want to explore. Um, and then if it's within my realm, I help facilitate that. And so that can be a typical, you know, what we would call a girlfriend experience. So it doesn't involve anything sort of heavy or BDSM related, or I'm also qualified to provide more 
heavy BDSM, kink and fetish uh, related activities, which um, to describe that would be to, you know, how long is a piece of string that can be anywhere from very sensual, soft activities to like beating someone uh, to bruising. Um, it can be so many different things. So that's that aspect. Um, and then the other aspect is the education through doing this job, as well as um, my own sort of furthering my education in other areas. I know a lot and I love to share that with people. And so that can be through I teach. Um, I've started teaching workshops as well as doing sort of one on one consults with people talking about kink, BDSM, sexuality. But it can also be and in some sessions I do sort of half providing something and half teaching something. And whether that be how to do an activity or helping people figure out their own sexuality and what they want to do and helping them acquire the skills that they might not know how to acquire otherwise. So that's the main crux of what I do. Awesome. That's a great rundown. I would love, Talison, if you could just talk to us a little bit about the importance of consent and how that plays in, particularly in BDSM, because, you know, I think it's really important um, for listeners to be aware, just because I think BDSM often gets a bad rap um, and you're talking there about, you know, activities that like beating or, or things like that. And I would love for you to give a rundown on all the consent procedures around that um, and really kind of making clear to our listeners that BDSM is not abusing someone. That's a different thing. So I'd love to hear your sort of rundown around that. Yeah, I think it would be really good too to get like a basic definition of BDSM and yeah. kink because we could have listeners who, you know, don't know what that is or what that means. Absolutely. So um, to begin with BDSM, generally it's an acronym that stands for a lot of different things, but generally um, is understood to stand for bondage, discipline, submission, and masochism or master. The S can also stand for sadomasochism. Um, it's one of those acronyms that has many little words underneath, but generally is used to describe erotic encounters that fall outside of the realm of um, vanilla encounters, which is very difficult to succinctly describe because that can be anything and many people have ideas of what is vanilla and what is BDSM and they differ, um, which is where consent really comes into it, especially consent is one of the foundations uh, that the BDSM community is built upon. A big way I describe when people, especially when I talk about, oh, I did a flogging scene yesterday and, you know, there was blood or when I'm talking about very heavy things, people are like, oh, so you like to hurt people then or you do a lot of violent things then? Well, yes, but no, because it's a difference between a boxing match and a street fight. You know, you go to watch a boxing match, there's two people, they've agreed to punch the shit out of each other. They've agreed they will also can tap out at any point. They have risk mitigation such as medics on hand, etc. That is BDSM in terms of the risk mitigation and the safety aspects compared to abuse, which is a street fight. No one agreed to get into a fight. They're punching on the street and now they're hurting each other and it really sucks. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah. And I think usually like, you know, when people go see a boxing match, both um, athletes in the boxing match have undergone a lot of training to participate in that activity. Um, it's not sort of two people who are untrained, don't know what they're doing. Yeah, usually there's a lot of training involved. Like what you said, you've got qualifications and training and things like that. 
Mm, exactly. Especially in the world of professional BDSM, there's a lot of training that gets involved. There's a lot of research and a lot of people in their personal lives as well. Like there are some people who might not practice inherently safely, uh, which I disapprove of. Um, you know, there are classes and a majority of people um, within the community, yeah, they get training. They're not just going to do something and not know how to do it safely um, because everyone wants to have a good time and the only way you can do that is by doing it safely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it kind of gets back to the whole point of sex, which is play and fun and a tool for connection and intimacy and sensory exploration and self-exploration. And, you know, when I think about consent, the word that comes to like sexual consent, the word that comes to mind for me and makes most sense for me is desire. It's the wanting, right? If there's no desire or no wanting, then there's no consent. And the difference between, and I love, I just love this analogy of like a boxing match versus a street fight. In a boxing match, both people really want to be there. But as you explained, in a street fight, maybe one person's like, hang on, I don't want to do this. This is really upsetting and distressing for me. So, yeah, I think making that kind of really clear distinction between sexual play that might get violent versus it's consensual and that's playful and that's enjoyable for both people, that's safe, that people kind of know what they're doing in that situation versus sexual play that becomes violent that's just abusive. Yeah, nail on the head right there. So I think a big thing that people don't realize about my work is one, how much I enjoy it. A lot of people have this idea that I'm wasting away and oh, I'm so sad. I'm such a sad little whore and oh, this is so terrible and I can't believe I have to do this. I love my job so much. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, can we just have this episode as hashtag sad little whore? It's <laughs> the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, Sorry, like, continue, obviously, tell oh, no, you're totally fine. Yeah, no. It's like, obviously, there are some days, like any other job, you know, I'm there being like, oh, I'm at work. I don't want to be at work. But, you know, all in all, I love my job and a lot of people are surprised by that. Um, and then there's also the aspect of, especially when it comes to my queer exploration sessions um, and a lot of the amazing clients that I have see regularly, it's not all about sex or kink a lot of there's a lot of conversation that happens and there's a lot of emotional connection that people are looking for and I think that a lot of people have this idea that sex work is fully carnal it's fully just wham bam thank you ma'am you know get your jollies off piss off give me my money when you know it can be that but so often it's much more than that and that is what makes the job so satisfying because there's a lot more connection and intimacy than a lot of people expect. Yeah, I, I wonder too, like I, I don't know if a lot of people, you know, know, but like even within the disability community, there's a role that often sex workers play in, you know, facilitating the needs of disabled people, like their sexual needs. So I, I'm not sure if you want to have a, a bit of a chat about that or um, what your views are on that, what you've seen or what you know of within the community around that. Yeah, I'm happy to. I honestly, I have a lot of disabled clients. I've had a number of clients that have been able to have it funded through NDIS, um, which 
isn't super common all the time because NDIS likes to make it very difficult, but it is a possibility. And I think it's a very important service. Access to sex and intimacy is not always possible with people with disabilities for varying reasons. So having access to sex workers who have an understanding and have you know, the want and ability to see people with disabilities is incredibly important, both on a physical and like mental level. Oh, that just makes my heart sing and makes me so happy because I've actually suggested to um, NDIS clients in the past to have sex work funded through the NDIS. And unfortunately, a lot of the clients just by virtue of the the client base that I see or or that uh, is referred to me, a lot of the clients are managed by their elderly parents and Mm. there's a lot of resistance and sort of shame and denial of need around sexuality. And, you know, I feel so strongly that sexuality is a human right. It's part of, you know, one of the most fundamental aspects of being human. And I wonder, you know, you were saying before about how such a huge part of your work is not just the kind of carnal physical, sexual side of things, but the education, the connection, the intimacy. And I feel like there's such a need for that for so many people, disabled and non-disabled, because our education system has so failed us in Australia. You know, the conceptualization of sex as a risk behavior rather than a fundamental part of being a human being, a connection for intimacy, knowing yourself. Um, Do you find that there's just so many people that come to you where their kind of base understanding of their own self-sexuality, what sex is, they really kind of benefit from having education in that area. Oh, a hundred percent. And there's so many different levels to, like I could talk about this for ages now. Uh, like there's so many different levels of education in both sex as a concept and, you know, ways it can be done as well as the self. I, you know, I have a medical condition that doesn't, that means I can't have penetrative uh, vaginal intercourse. It's incredibly painful to me. And all my clients know this, you know, they're not getting surprised by it. And there have been some conversations I've had where some people inquiring have been like, but so you don't do real sex then? I'm like, oh, my friends, what is real sex? Like, why does sticking, you know, your penis in a vagina equal real sex? This will be be major news for all the gay women in the country that's like, oh, I guess I've never had real sex. I know, right? (laughs) Like, of the amount of clients who found out that I can't stick something inside me have gone, oh, you, you don't have sex? And I'm like, I'm a sex worker, my friend. I have, I have a lot of sex. So like there's that element. There's also a lot of element of people not knowing what to do in a sexual situation. Um, you know, a, a majority of my, which was very surprising to me, honestly, of my queer exploration sessions, um, since I've set them up, a majority of my clients who specifically come in for those sessions, are uh, they going, I don't know what to do. I know I don't know how to talk about it or ask her things. And it's a lot of us kind of, sitting down and working out what acts they're comfortable with or what acts they're comfortable and how to ask or talk about or how to even try to identify what they might want to try. Um, So there's that element that there's also elements of, you know, on another one of the silly side of I've had people lick my belly button and go, oh, is that going to make you come? You know, (laughs) so so the, the education around sex is, wild um and varied especially 
there's also this inane narrative that oh you just figure it out like you just like especially I found with a lot of my autistic clients that our sex education is so varied as well like my sex education was oh man and woman they get married and then then they have a baby um I love the mumble (laughs) yeah like there was I I don't even think I got taught a penis goes inside a vagina like I wasn't even taught that basic like stupid level I was just taught oh yeah people get married and then they decide to have a baby and that's it and you know I didn't know what STDs were until I was like 17 I had to learn all that myself Did I wasn't even Catholic ta- education yeah yeah okay. uh, yeah Catholic <laughs> education and like yeah I didn't even get the whole you'll get you'll get uh, herpes and die yeah. like I didn't even get that it wasn't um, even a risk behavior it was just not a behavior yeah you just you just don't do it um you're not trying to have a baby you're not going to do it and when you're trying to have a baby you'll figure it out and this narrative I found a lot of people have been like a lot of autistic people I find you'll figure out is not kind of how it works you have to be told you need explicit instruction you know clean the kitchen what does that mean does it mean wipe the bench or mop the floor does it mean both does it mean do the dishes and the same goes for sex let's have sex what does that mean does that mean kissing does that mean touching in certain areas does it mean getting out a chainsaw like what does it mean (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why you, you might want a chainsaw uh you know generally not but a lot of my job is kind of figuring out what people want to do and helping them figure it out themselves yeah it was interesting because I was looking up like some of the research that I could find around like autism and ADHD sex BDSM kink and and even just like there's not that many studies exploring neurodivergent people's sexuality or experiences of sexuality there's probably not many studies I would say exploring, you know, the experience of sexuality within disability in general as well. But yeah, like one of the studies that I had a look at, um, it was saying that generally um, autistic women had more sexual experiences than per se autistic men. Um, so like autistic men had a lot of desire for the experiences, but not knowing like how to actually enter um, like a sexual relationship with someone and then like feeling frustrated and then maybe like after a period of time feeling isolated and excluded and then sort of like giving up. Um, like this is very stereotypical, but this is what the research sort of looked at. Whereas like AFAB autistic women, they were having more sexual experiences, but then reporting like those sexual experiences were often like unwanted or not what they expected or not positive sexual experiences. So yeah, like I think it's so important that we have better sex education in general than actually looking at specific communities needs. Like, you know, how can we tailor sex education within those communities? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about autistic men having that kind of desire for sexual experiences, but then, um, you know, not knowing how to kind of initiate that. And I feel like that goes back to what you were saying earlier, Talison, around, you know, the whole clean the kitchen. Okay. What does that mean? (laughs) You know, what are all the steps involved? And I would love to see that too, you know, very A, A, better sex education for everyone, because I think everyone needs really thorough, good sex education. And particularly around, you know, what you were talking about, Talison, in just expanding the super limited concept that we have about what sex is. You know, I totally agree with you. And we were laughing about it before, but I think it's actually such a cause of harm and pain and disappointment, the whole to have a 
full sexual experience, there needs to be P and V and, you know, the man needs to have an orgasm, right? If a man hasn't had an orgasm, then the sex didn't actually happen. If a penis hasn't entered a vagina, then the sex isn't real. So limiting, so harmful. Um, I would love to see an expansion of our concept of sex and exactly as you said, Monique, um, actually kind of targeted and focused sex education for particular groups. That just reminded me a little bit of a study that's one of my favorite to uh, just talk about um, because when I found out about it, it blew my mind, um, surprisingly. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was by. I cannot remember for the life of me, but it was a phone survey that was done and it was just a research study on uh, what people thought sex was, like what is the act that makes it, you know, in quotation marks, full sex. Um, And there were no definitive there was nothing that 100% of participants could agree on that was full sex and it went from a range of things of like you know does a penis have to enter a vagina is there a condom does there have to be an orgasm etc and just the differences of answers it you know really goes to show of like not only at an educational level but at a personal level everyone has very different ideas on what quote-unquote real sex is I've gotten into this argument with my doctors many, many times. I've had many medical professionals get a bit annoyed at me uh, because of the question, are you sexually active? They don't actually care if I'm sexually active. What they're actually asking, I find generally is one of three questions. Could I have an STD? Could I be pregnant? Or can they do an internal exam? Mm. They don't actually need to know if I'm getting my jollies off. They Mm. need to know, but they're not asking one of these questions or whatever ones they need to know. And, you know, For me, as someone who I can't have penetrative anything, so I go, yeah, I'm sexually active. And they go, oh, cool, let me stick this inside you. Then I'm like, oh, no, the answer to that one is no. You need to actually ask the question you meant. So even in our medical fields, they're not acknowledging the differences of that language has and our concepts of it. Yeah, that is such a good point. And, you know, I always like to equate sex with play and you know, when we're talking about, say, like the neurodivergent community as well, I think it's a nice analogy in that, Talison, you were saying like about that phone survey and and no one could agree and there's all these different ideas about what kind of full sex means or what sex means. But our kind of cultural narrative is like it's penis in vagina, right? And I feel like play, this might be a long bow to draw, but stay with me, I feel like Play in, when we think about autistic play versus neurotypical play, say for autistic kids versus neurotypical kids, it's kind of the same thing where what actually constitutes play behavior is so varied. And ultimately, what makes something play is, is everyone having fun? Is everyone having a fun time, right? Whereas we know that kind of because everyone has a different, all kids have a different idea about what's playful and what's play and what's fun for them. But we have this overarching cultural narrative that play is turn-taking, play is like imagination games, you know, whereas that's not the reality on the ground, even amongst neurotypical kids. So I just think that's an interesting kind of comparison or analogy, whereas when we slot sexuality and sex behavior more into that sphere of play, we can actually open up our understanding of what it could be or what it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think too, like coming coming back to sort of like research stuff around this, um, just something that I've noticed is the more intersectional you get, the less research there is. 
So, you know, how I was talking about like the study of, you know, autistic sexual experiences. Well, the study only focused on men and women, but it, you know, when you kind of get more intersectional and look at non-binary folk and trans people, different forms of sexuality, you know, queer, asexual, like just the research gets less and less. And a lot of it is non-existent, which is problematic. Tell us, and how does neurodivergence affect your work? So for me, it affects me in a couple of different ways. Some of the biggest things that I notice is I have a lot of um, sensory seeking and avoidant um, behaviors. So there are elements where, you know, if I've, if I've had a long day, you know, it's a long day of a lot of touch. It's a, it's a very, it's a very sensory um, field. So, you know, I might come home and my partner's like, can I give you a hug? I'm like, don't fucking touch me. Now I'm going to go have a shower and no one look at me or talk to me just because I've had such a sensorily, like, mm-hmm. overwhelming day. And very um, social as well. Yeah. There's a lot of masking involved, which I think is my neurodivergence is both a good and bad thing there. Um, one of my special interests is acting. Um, I studied acting at varying levels for about 10 years. Um, so I am very good at very quickly figuring out the person that I need to be, the performance of myself. It's always truthful, but it's always a performance. It's always a mask. Um, and able to put that on and figure out, you know, how the best to do it, which I attribute to my neurodivergence because it is such a strong passion of mine and I've been doing it since forever, you know, both as an actor and as a person going to the shops. But then there's also the other element of that is incredibly taxing and tiring. And so that's been interesting, I feel. Yeah, there's a very, the social aspect and the sensory aspect. Um, Are there strategies that you use to, you know, re-regulate when you get home or how do you manage that? Yeah, so I will almost always like shower as soon as I get home and sort of have space and time for myself. I also make sure that I lower sort of my tasks for the day or the evening. So my partner will cook for me or if they're not cooking for me, then I will make have like a frozen meal sort of that I've prepared earlier as a way to just reduce the amount of things I need to do and the amount of spoons I need to use. Um, Those are the main things as well as it took me a while to actually learn this, but which is funny enough in work, my boundaries are so good in my personal life, still figuring it out. And even just that thing of like my partner goes, Hey, can I give you a hug? And I go, no. And just being able to create those boundaries for myself has been very important in regulating. I was wondering as well, does sex, sexuality, BDSM, kink, like are any of those part of your intense interests as an autistic person? Very much so. Um, BDSM and like sexuality are very much my sort of very intense interest. What I would love to do, I don't know if I have the academic prowess for it or time or money, et cetera. But I would love to be in a position one day to get my master's in sexology and go into the research of BDSM and sexuality, particularly amongst queer and autistic communities, because there isn't a lot of research on it. And I get upset because I like to read all the research and it's not there. Also, being a special interest and intense interest of mine um, gets me into trouble as well, because I will. Um, Apparently, not everyone wants to learn the the history of, uh, you know, 
dominatrixes in like you know 18th century England all the time or they and people don't want to <laughs> lo- like know the ins and outs of like cock and ball torture like as I'm getting my coffee I don't I don't understand it's interesting okay. it's fascinating can, can I just say Talison if you're up for it I would love us to record a mini app for our Patreon on the intricacies of cock and ball torture if you want, sure. Uh, I will happily go into the ins and outs. Amazing. Amazing. Many activities. Uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. Another thing I can add on, which affects my work and my personal life, which people find very funny and it's very silly, but it isn't. Um, one of my sensory things is I really, I hate bodily fluids, which is ironic considering I work with them very closely but i i hate them i hate them so much so that's something that people don't really consider or think that might to be something i'm adverse to um considering my work but um if it were practical i would have sex completely dry but unfortunately that's not comfortable for anyone so i guess do you just manage that by maybe trying to schedule um or or, or maybe trying to keep certain activities or certain clients for kind of in the morning when you feel fresh and you've got more capacity and then other types of kind of sexual activity that you're more comfortable with or, or have less of that ick factor around for the times when you have less capacity yeah, there's that as well as um, if, you know, there's a certain activity, I will also, if I think I might, my capacity might be a bit limited, I will also just very be very upfront and let a person know and be like, I'm happy to do X, Y, Z, but I will let you know that, you know, I will be instantly washing my hands or I will be, in, you know, I might pull a face, I might even gag. It's not about you, it's just me. And, you know, other mitigations like, you know, having a towel nearby, where, having gloves, having, you know, even like stuff like lube. I hate touching lube, so I always put on gloves to do that or I have a towel to instantly get rid of it because um, lube is very important, but I hate it. <laughs> I actually think that that is so important for people to hear and something that I think people maybe might have misconceptions around around sex workers in that what it sounds like you're doing there is modeling ongoing consent and that Mm. even though you're a sex worker you're still a human being who is allowed to be like actually I'm not really loving this right now let's do something different or you know okay I was okay with that before but now I'm not you know let's try this or I might you know respond to this in this certain way and I think that that really speaks to the kind of broadness of your work that you were talking about earlier, where your job isn't just to have sex with people. Your Mm. job is a sex educator and a sexuality facilitator. And that's amazing modeling, I think, within the confines of your kind of profession, being able to model ongoing consent. Yeah, and I think it's it's good as well for autistic people listening who might have sensory issues around fluids or things like lubrication. And it's, yeah, it's, it's good to have these conversations, open, honest communication about, yeah, like how do people actually manage that? Um, because again, sexuality is a big part of people's life. Um, it's a human need. Yeah. And it's, it's good to hear about like, what are other people's accommodations, you know, that they might put in place or give for themselves? Because again, this stuff isn't really talked about openly a lot of the time.
So Talison, in your opinion, what's the overlap between neurodivergence, queer identity and kink? Why do you feel like there's such a high proportion of neurodivergent folk in the kink and queer communities? For me, it answering that question, there is like that half element of the back of my head that goes, water is wet. Um, like it just feels so, of course, but obviously there are reasons. Um, you know, for the queer community, a big thing of, you know, as we were discussing before, where a lot of society, you know, is built around these essentialist ideas of a woman is this, a man is this, straight is this, gay is that. It's very performative, um, you know. A lot of the idea of that we have around gender is around performance, not around feeling. So it would make sense when, you know, a lot of autistic people and a lot of neurodivergent people struggle with social rules that don't actually have a reason. They don't actually make sense. They're just there for some reason to look at that and go, for why? I'm not going to do that. That doesn't make sense. So two plus two equals four. If gender is often a performance that is arbitrary, then why bother with it if you're not already going to care about other social rules um, which is I feel like a big reason why a lot of autistic people are queer and are within the queer community um, and even you know autistic people who might identify with one gender or another still will often find that it's a bit more you know fluid it's not as essentialist so there's that element and the kink community, the Venn diagram is is a circle. Um, I swear, sometimes it. I know that neurotypical people exist within the kink and queer communities, but I I got a long time without seeing some of them. Um, kink is is it's almost made for autistic people, right? If you know you're having normal sex and you have more sensory needs or you have sensory avoidance, well, cool. You can add in more sensory by you know adding in some bondage adding adding in sensory play or impact play or you know you can take things away with blindfolds restraints again and there's a lot of structure around you know how we discuss kink and how we discuss sex and you know as we're talking about that boxing match you both people need to be on the same page of what's happening in that boxing match um which you might not regularly have in a lot of vanilla sex because again that idea of i know what sex is it's this this that um, and so it's not as common to go, cool, what exact activities are you wanting to do? Here's what it's going to sound like if I'm having a good time. Here's what it's going to sound like if I'm having a bad time. X, Y, Z, I don't want to do this. These things I'm open to, depending on how we're going. Whereas that's a very average pre-negotiation sort of session in the kink world, um, which is great for autistic people because you know exactly what's going to be happening. You know exactly what's expected of you. And it's very upfront it's not um do you want to come upstairs and have a coffee maybe uh you know it's explicit um and I think that has a lot of draw yeah I, I definitely think like a lot of neurodivergent people exist in like different social minority communities yeah I've had like quite a few clients or people I've interacted with who are neurodivergent who are in alternative relationship lifestyles um, or, you know, are in polyamorous relationships or in the kink community, um, the BDSM community, the queer community. There's just a lot of overlap, I think, in those areas. And that's even shown in like some of the research that I could find. So like, for example, I found a study in 2021 where they interviewed um, eight autistic women in Australia and they found that several of the people in the study reported that they were part of those diverse and inclusive communities 
um, and actually prided themselves on living alternative lifestyles, such as participating in the kink community. Um, and there was mention in that study of like gender normative performances. They felt like, you know, part of what attracted them to the kink community and alternative communities was, yeah, like not having to conform to gender norms and gender roles as much, which was quite interesting. And yeah, like, Again, another study that I found, and this is just showing like how little research there actually is. It's an honors thesis from 2018. And it, yeah, it's one of the few studies that actually looks at BDSM practitioners. So they surveyed around 500 BDSM practitioners in an online survey and about 5.7% reported uh, that they were autistic. Um, and they were talking about in the study how that's a lot higher than in the general population. And it's the only study um, that I could find that utilised a sex-positive and neurodiversity-affirming paradigm investigating sexual behaviour um, outside of the norm. So, again, like a lot of the studies can actually be quite negative or view things in a pathologizing way. And like when I've participated in like research communities, people have been interested in doing research on BDSM, that community and neurodivergence. But there has been like a bit of worry about, well, you know, will this research actually be used against those communities or in a negative way? And like when you're part of a, min a minority and you're being studied, like that is a legitimate concern. Another study I found, um, and I actually include this in my trainings on the neurodiversity affirming paradigm, because I think it's really important for all like medical practitioners, mental health practitioners um, to know and allied health as well. Um, yeah, like what are actually the stats on neurodivergent people and sexuality and gender? So there was an Australian-specific study in 2018 that surveyed transgender teens and young adults, and they actually found that 22% were autistic compared with 2.5% um, of all Australians. And yeah, there are other studies that like estimate between 6 and 25.5% of gender diverse people are autistic. Just quite a high ratio, I guess. There haven't actually been as many studies on ADHDs around gender as autistic people, which was really interesting to see. Um, but yeah, there was a study back in 2014 that looked at ADHDs when compared to peers were more likely to report gender diversity. But yeah, there's not as much research on gender diverse and trans ADHDs. And there was another study in 2018 where they actually found that only 30% of autistic people in the study identified as heterosexual compared to 70% of neurotypical participants. Um, and in the study, autistic people endorsed higher rates of being, you know, identifying as homosexual, bisexual and asexual. Um, but the highest rate for autistic women was actually identifying as bisexual which was really interesting. And again, there are higher rates endorsed as well for ADHDs um, and being part of the queer community. So identifying as homosexual, bisexual, asexual. Yeah, I think that's really important research for people to know about. I, I think so too, because I think as like a health practitioner, um, a lot of the research or, you know, the norm for autistic women in particular, like an AFABs has been you know, an autistic woman married to like a guy 
basically. So like heterosexuality in autistic women and men. So it's really important, like as health practitioners, that we understand that there is an intersectionality in this population. And that if you're going to work with autistic and ADHD people and neurodivergent people, that you actually need to be up to date in your training on being LGBTQIA plus affirming when working with this clientele and you actually need to be up to date in your training around, you know, gender diversity and sexuality in general. Yeah. I mean, I think being affirming to the queer community is like you were saying before, Talison, you know, it's a circle, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you're a neurodiversity affirming, then you have to be queer affirming as well, because it's the same group of people, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And I, it doesn't surprise me that ADHDs are also more likely to be sexuality fluid, you know, got so much stimulation seeking. So <laughs> Also, ADHDs are, I reckon, less likely to adhere to social norms as well. You know, they're more likely to be themselves, um, you know, know what they like, um, not be like into the performative nature of um, general society. I guess what I'd add there is I wonder if an element of it is not so much like what people are into because but but I do think that that is a part of it but almost like what people are capable of doing like some people are just like no I, I, I cannot pretend I can't pretend to be this thing or fit into this box or do this thing that's being asked of me because I don't see any purpose to it. It doesn't make sense. You know, I am much more interested in doing this other thing or being this other way. And why is it that I can't do that? You know, you're just saying I can't because I can't, that makes no sense. Whereas I see for neurotypical people, a lot less um, like internal friction around being part of the performance. And I think an element of that has to do with those different things that drive the nervous system for neurotypical versus neurodivergent people. Neurodivergent people being driven by interest and passion, neurotypical people having such a high or placing such a high kind of internal premium on social cohesion. So I think it's almost the reverse or can be the reverse for neurotypical people where it almost feels like that internal friction around um, not doing the performance. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Um, I don't know. Something I'm also curious about, like for you, Talison, is do you see many ADHDs, like people who are not autistic but ADHD in the BDSM and kink community? Because we've talked a lot about the autism side of things, but again, you know, like we can see like there's a bit of lack of research for mm. ADHD is. So I'm just interested in, yeah, your perception and experiences around that. Yeah, I absolutely have seen a lot of people um, with ADHD. I feel like I, I, something I'm currently working on is I have a bit of a habit to equate autism and ADHD um, because of the high comorbidity um, rates. And so a majority of my social circle and colleague circle is has both autism and ADHD so in my brain often the two just go together inherently which isn't always the case um but yeah no there's definitely a high amount of people with ADHD very interesting and for the same reasons as I was saying with autism it's very much the same you know lots of different stimuli as well as a lot of different um places that one can go to hyperfixate on you know there's 
so much research available to you, so many cool, fun new things to learn. Um, so it's very easy to hyperfixation hop around the BDSM community because, you know, you get into rope, but then you meet someone at the rope class and they talk about wax plane. You want to learn about the wax plane now, but oh, now you <laughs> want to learn about the impact. And this person makes their own leather. You want to make your own leather too. Um, so on and so forth. Kind of sounds like the hobby hopping that people do. Like I want to do crochet and then I'm going to get into wool spinning and then knitting and then craft, <laughs> but just like a different area of interest. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many hobbies available to one within the BDSM community as well. So, mm. and I'm wondering too, like I've I've actually wondered this before within the sex worker community, how many sex workers would identify as neurodivergent or be neurodivergent within that profession? It's something, yeah, I've just sort of thought about before, and I'm I know there's probably a lot of neurotypical sex workers, but yeah, I do wonder if there is a proportion of people in the sex work um, profession who are drawn to that work um, because it plays a part in their special interests or, you know, for various other reasons. From my personal experience, uh, yeah, I get surprised when a neurotypical worker walks in the door. I think the, one of the group chats that, you know, me and some colleagues have is like autistic whores. Like we, uh, um, <laughs> it's a very neurodiverse community with high rates of, you know, autism, ADHD, um, as well as like DID, BPD. A lot of disabled people, both physical um, and mental, go to sex work because it is honestly one of the very few jobs that are available to us that is within our realm of doing because you make your own hours, you consent to what you consent to, you decide what to do, um, and you're able, you know, you don't have a boss going, oh, this is your third sick day this week, how dare you? So, yeah, there's a high, high proportion of um, neurodivergency within the sex work community. Yeah, I I wonder too, like the ability to work part-time. So for example, if you have a disability, that means you can you have capacity to work maybe two days a week without getting completely burned out or getting your physical health conditions flared up. You know, there's not a lot of work out there that offers like a high amount of pay for like flexibility and working part-time as well. Yeah, that's definitely a big draw of sex work to a lot of people. Again, it's a big reason why I enjoy it so much because I'm I don't have the capacity to you know work 40 hours a week um but I still got bills so I'm so happy we got to explore this because again I think it's something that because of the stigma around sex work as a profession I don't know if there's been a lot of research you know into or even just talk about some of these things So from your perspective, what are some of the differences you've noticed and experienced in how sexuality is expressed for autistic versus neurotypical people? I think some of the biggest things that I've noticed is in how we communicate about it. Um, you know, as we were talking about that idea of implied uh, versus explicit communication, um, I find a lot of neurotypical people rely, especially when it comes to sexuality and the expression of it. It's a, lo a lot of implied, a lot of implied communication and a lot of almost beating around the bush. There's this idea of you can't say exactly what, you know, talking, there's an expectation to read between the lines, um, which, you know, a, a lot of neurodivergent people are notoriously bad at. So whereas you have 
in a lot of neurodivergent people, we rely less on that. A big thing of I've noticed in my education sessions has been convincing people that it's okay to be explicit um, because we've been taught you can't talk about that. You can't say that. You can't just ask, you know, hey, do this thing, please. And just trying to get into people's minds that no, you can just turn around and just very bluntly go, I want to do this now, please. And thank you. Are you interested in doing it? And once it kind of takes hold, a lot of you know, neurodivergent people take to that like a duck to water. Um, there's a lot of like, oh, amazing. And it makes it easier for a lot of people. And there's also a lot of sensory differences as well. There's a lot more need for even, you know, taking, forgetting about kink and the sensory experiences that are given there. As we talked about before, things like lube can be upsetting as well as needing music, but not music with lyrics on at a certain volume or the lights need to be on or the lights need to be off. Blankets need to go to the other side of the room or blankets need to be on, etc. Nudity, the sensorial experience of being naked can be too much for someone. There's all these different elements um, that are not as common, I find, with um, neurotyp- neurotypical experiences and expressions of sexuality. Yeah, I love that you went through a lot of the different sort of sensory aspects that people may or may not be kind of sensitive to or or seeking of. Um, I read an amazing article ages ago now, actually, on the website Neuroclastic. It's a great website, got lots of really good um, neurodivergent written pieces. And this article was um, a woman writing about her, anonymously writing about her experience of sex with her husband, not to go into the stereotypes of, um, you know, we've just been talking about how common it is to be queer. Um, But she was basically writing this article sort of saying like, oh, from the perspective of I don't know what to do and it had this very much like I'm in the wrong aspect to it. But as you read through it, it's like, It sounds like you just have a lot of sensory needs during sex and your partner is thinks that they're stupid, is not taking them seriously and is annoyed at you for having a different sensory system to him. I wanted to raise that because I think that a lot of women or AFAB individuals, there's the social layer as well and, you know, the patriarchy layer and the gendered expectation layer too, that it's like, it's not ladylike to talk about sex stuff or to say what you want. And also the whole idea of, you know, sex being about male pleasure, right? Even if we are thinking about our sex education from the point of view of, well, the purpose of sex is to have a baby. This is where the whole, the male orgasm is essential to a completed, in inverted commas, sexual experience. Um, And so I think a lot of women have this internal kind of brainwash narrative that, oh, it's actually okay if I'm not having a nice time because I fundamentally don't believe that sex should be comfortable and pleasurable and fun and enjoyable for me. Um, And I love that, you know, that kind of explicit going through all the different sensory needs that you might have and almost the permission that you've given Talison to people to just say, yeah, this is what I want. This is what doesn't feel good for me. This is what does feel good for me and I'm not going to do something that I don't want to do. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's something that I find so, it's unsurprising, but it's also sadly surprising in that way Mm. how many people need that permission. Because, yeah, I was, yeah, what you were saying, like so many people are taught that their pleasure isn't actually that important. And, you know, it's 
it, it would be very vulgar if you asked for something explicitly. And it's like, you, you can just say, hey, beat me out now, please. And thank you. Like, you can just, you can just do that. And, you know, worst case scenario, like I always tell people, I'm like, generally, so, as long as, you know, you're with a person you're comfortable with and safe with, absolute worst case scenario, if, if you explicitly ask for something, is they going to go, mm, that's not really my cup of tea. The worst thing they're going to do is say no. And then the best case scenario, they're going to go, oh my God, yes, thank you so much for telling me. Because generally speaking, the people you have sex with also want you to have a good time. And if they don't, stop having sex with them. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's actually some really great research on that. Well, I mean, I use the term great loosely. It's quite depressing, actually. Um, <laughs> So this is a study uh, that was done in the States um, by an American researcher, Sarah McClelland, and it was qualitative research. And she was basically looking at um, groups of young, um, young individuals, kind of high school, young adult age. And she asked some very simple questions around like, you know, what, me- what makes uh, a sexual experience satisfying to you? Like, what does it mean to be sexually satisfied? And she found that young individuals that identified as men, young boys, were like, well, I'm sexually satisfied if I had an orgasm. Makes sense. That's very logical. But what she found is a really common type of response from young women, young girls, is I'm sexually satisfied if he had fun, and this is, again, heterosexual, and if it didn't hurt. Mm, Spar is on the floor. Yeah. It's on. It's literally on oh, the floor. So dug a hole to put the bar in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The floor is not low enough, and so you know, I think that's important for parents to be aware of too. That um, the messaging that you're communicating to your kids of all any and all gender needs to be that sex should be fun, and it should be fun for everyone. And if it's not fun for you, then that's an issue that you need to either work out within that relationship or stop engaging in sexual activity with that person or any number of other solution. But ultimately, sex should be fun, should feel good and nice. Yeah, I feel like the having that framing of sex as play is so important. I feel like that's a big reason why, you know, play is most often the word that we use in the BDSM community. And the phrase that I use all the time is, you know, I take what I do seriously, but my attitude lightly. You know, it's called play for a reason. I love that. Like, you know, I'm very serious about making sure I'm doing things safely and, you know, making sure everything's on board. But like the actual act itself should be fun. Like it, it there is no such thing as serious sex. It, it shouldn't be. It's, it's a very, it's a silly, it's a very silly experience to have. Bringing it back to you and your own sort of personal experience, Alison, what strengths and challenges do you feel your neurodivergence has given you? And do you have any kind of top tips for others who may have a brain similar to yours? It's such a, I remember when you sent me the draft of this and I was reading this question because my neurodivergency is such, I can't separate it from myself. So it's mm. very hard to figure out what strengths and challenges it gives me because all my strengths come from it in a way and all my challenges come from it because it is, you know, such an inherent part of my identity and how I interact with and perceive the world. I, I think some of the, the biggest thing it's given me, and especially my understanding of neurodivergency and how that sits within me and how I interact with the world is having that 
self-understanding and understanding like a very deep analytical understanding of how I am in the world and like my like phenomenological experience and being able to then go okay I had this experience let me think about that here's why and I think because I love acquiring knowledge so when I found out that I was neurodivergent I acquired as much knowledge as possible and I've been able to use that to then inform myself and the world around me and I feel like that has been the biggest sort of strength for me that I've found um and probably my biggest tips for other people is you you know you can't very often separate yourself from your brain your neurotype it's you it's a part of you um more often than not so rather than putting it into like a little category of like oh that's my autism xyz using it as a lens to in- understand why how what you're doing and how others might perceive you and yeah more so using it as a lens as a way of informing your understanding if that makes sense i think that has been my biggest thing that has helped me navigate the world since developing this understanding of myself i love that that was a great answer so do you have a favorite moment or story that shows how your brain works i have so many um but the one that comes to mind especially with the conversations that we've been having is when i used to work in retail i used to work in a little um like board game shop and board games dungeons and dragons specifically like yeah tabletop role-playing games is one of my special interests i was having a great time working there retail is not for me though however uh, for many reasons but something i kept finding was when my co-workers who same interest in D, we're having a great time and I, I i found out that she was also into kink and that opened the floodgates of being told a lot of like you can't talk about that at work you cannot talk about that at work we are we're, we that's not appropriate and it made me think about a lot of my a lot of my life i have been spent being told that's not an appropriate conversation topic you can't talk about that here we're in a restaurant stop talking about pet play uh you know yeah but it's like um, but why well, yeah exactly <laughs> then why don't, why like why don't you want to learn the history of this one impact play implement that like originated in scotland because this lady didn't wear a belt like it's just so fascinating I've always, I love knowledge and I love sharing it. And I think that sort of story encapsulates how much I love it, but how much I struggle with the social rules of you're not allowed to talk about BDSM when you're working in a store, apparently. I don't know why, but apparently there were, it's not even like the store was empty. We weren't even busy. We were killing time. And I wasn't allowed to talk about kink. It was very sad. It was a sad day for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad you found a job that aligns to your special interests and you get to oh, talk about it all day long. You it's know? so good. My favorite mm. thing is when we have someone come in um, to do training. It's like when I've been asked to train someone in something and it's something that I'm very interested in, like, or when I get an opportunity to talk about like, Uh, like fetish formation or whatever and all the other sort of people in the dungeon space who've heard this talk a billion times go okay yep talison go 
And I'm like, okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I love that. And what we might actually do if you're open to it, because I'm just thinking as you're talking, I'd love to put on our Patreon um, a little like ta- Talison teaches <laughs> thing. That would be amazing. But, but what we I'd might love to do, do is I might do a poll on our Patreon for what they, maybe if you can tell us like um, you can send us on email like, a handful of topics like that are your kind of special interest topics. We'll put them as a poll on our Patreon and then our Patreons can select like what they're most interested in. And then we'll set up a time to do a little Talison teachers. Amazing. That'd be oh my awesome. God, I'm so excited. <laughs> oh no, don't give me an excuse to info dump about what's on my favorite <laughs> So Talison, it's been an absolute delight to have you come and chat with us today about all things neurodivergence, kink, BDSM, sexuality. This is actually a topic that um, lots of people have asked us to cover and it's definitely a special interest if I can uh, appropriate that term of <laughs> mine. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm so excited for this episode to air. I think it'll be really interesting and helpful for lots of people. Oh, I've had so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs. Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle the Neurodivergent Woman podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.